something that's been going on in my mind and something which I actually pray for this church. Um, I, I want to talk about it today. And if you've got your Bibles there, do you want to turn to the book of Revelation 21, chapter 21? And I'm just going to read from verse 1 to, to verse 4. I'll read it, then I'll talk a wee bit, then we'll come back to it, and I'll, I'll explain. Remember how we opened our, our service. David talked about the one thing that he desired. What's happened? John, the apostle John's in prison in Patmos. He has this revelation taken to heaven. He sees things that are going to unfold, things that have unfolded and are to unfold. And it now gives us a picture of really the end. In a sense, it's the end of the book, the end of God's story or his story or history as we know it. John says these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place, or that could be translated tabernacle. You see a little note in your Bible there. The dwelling place or tabernacle of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. As I said, we'll come back to this passage in a, a few moments. Um, but I want to say a few things. David talked about the one thing, and I want us to think about this prevalence or this idea of one thing that, believe it or not, dominates so much of our lives. Something, I think, that's built deep within our being. I don't know if you watch the BBC interviewing people, I think BBC or Sky, one of them, when, when the nightclubs opened. I don't know if you, you watched that at all, but there were two young girls who were 18, never been to the clubbing before, and one of them, they were asked questions, and one of them said these words. She said, this is what life is about. And of course, those of us who can remember how we used to think at 18 and now have had 50-odd years just pass on, well, you know yourself just how you sigh and groan <laughs> at the whole idea. I often look back and think, did I ever think when I was 18? I used to think I knew everything when I was 30, but by the time I got 40, I realized, no, and by the time I got 50, you know, as you get older, <laughs> you know, you start to see just how, well, I didn't really think things through. I, I, I listened to her, and it reminded me of an article I read in the Sunday Times newspaper, and it was one that I was really interested in. It was all about, again, another young girl who 
who had really very bright, was going to Oxford, I think. I think it was Oxford. And either that or Cambridge. But, but she was being interviewed and talked about her life and that. And then on the meaning of life or how society should conduct itself, in the article she said, well, it's all about tolerance. If we're tolerant, that's all that matters. And she was very forthright. She wasn't arrogant. She was simply reflecting the social conditioning that she'd been undergoing and, and growing up. But it was interesting, you know, I, I looked at the article and I, I gave a deep sigh. And I became very cynical and I thought, my goodness, if only you'd been alive 3,000 years ago, I thought. Socrates, the great Greek philosopher, wouldn't have had to go about asking people questions. Plato wouldn't have written his, his, his Republic. And Aristotle wouldn't talk about, think about first cause. None of these great Greek philosophers would need to understand the meaning of life. If this girl had been living, she could have just said to them, look, it's all about tolerance. And they would have gone, wow, wow. And Augustine, St. Thomas Aquinas, the great theologians, they wouldn't have had to have wasted their time trying to understand the meaning, the purpose of life. Some of the great philosophers, René Descartes, he locked himself in a, well, a big oven, it's not, not the ovens as we know it, and he, he, he decided he was going to doubt everything and eventually came up with a lovely phrase called cogito ergo sum, which means I exist, you know, because I think, therefore I am. And he wouldn't have had to do it if this girl had just been living. And then you had all the great philosophers, Kant and all these things. And then people like myself wouldn't have had to spend a couple of years in philosophy departments looking at all their stuff, trying to understand the meaning and purpose of life. When this wee lassie, in a sense, just simply, and I don't mean that in dog, but she just came out and said, well, it's all about just being tolerant. If we're all tolerant, then we'll all get on together and the world will be hunky-dory. And, you know, that, that we all know now as we get older, that's just nonsense. But see, people are looking for one thing. People need a reference point. They need an anchor, right? They need something from which they will be able to, to, to negotiate, navigate life. They're looking for antidotes to the effects of life, but they're not looking at the root cause of what's causing the effects. And so we have political systems which have isms, communism, capitalism, socialism, fascism. People have the one thing that they're going to reference for their, their life to make it understand, to make, to, to make sense of it in their understanding. The same thing happens in, in religious scenes, theology. People will get, want theological systems that in the end will give them a reference point. Now, don't get me wrong here. All these things are necessary, I think. I think it's important that you have some kind of reference point in all these areas. But in the end, they may mitigate the effects of life, but they don't deal with the real issues 
of life. And as we, we come to, to this whole idea of the one thing, because that's what David was talking about, all these different things that you and I are being bombarded with. It's interesting now, I read an article about in America, there's now a whole new movement that's called progressive Christianity, which is different from the evangelical brand of, of Christianity. Um, people are always looking for the one thing. And you get it in politics, don't it? The progressive, now everything's progressive. I haven't the heart sometimes to tell some people who are busy telling me about, about the progressive kind of movement in politics. I haven't the heart to tell them that when I was growing up in the 50s in Edinburgh, that there was a guy who used to knock on our door with a blue rosette who belonged to the Progressive Party. The problem was it was a Progressive and Unionist Party. It was, a, it was linked to the whole Tory Party, the Conservatives. And Solomon said in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. It's all been done before. But people have this need for the one thing. If you like reading a book, you'll know that when you come to the end, you know the ending brings together all the threads, all the subplots, and all the different things that's gone on in the book. Suddenly it all comes to the end. And in the last chapter, we get an understanding of what it was all about. And that's no different, in a sense, from what we find in the Bible. And I want just to look at that passage we read. It's um, 21, Revelation 21. And, and you notice some of the things that happened. It's the ending of the book. This is a drawing of all the different strands that you find in the Bible. Now, I'm not dismissing theology or anything. I, I'm, I, I'm really keen on a, people have a good grounding in theological stuff, etc., etc. But we've got to understand that the threads come together, and what happens is we're going to find the one thing that David was seeking. Notice what it says. It says in its verse 2, And I heard a loud voice from the, from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Notice the idea that God wants to dwell. If the ending is about God dwelling, God being with people, God wiping away every tear, no pain, no death, no more, former things going away, old orders passing away, then that's a main theme. If this is the ending, if this is what the author of the book is saying, here's the meaning, this is what it's all about, then you get the idea that all the threads are all going towards that. That in fact, the working of God is this, that God 
breaks into human history and all these things that I've just read, we'll find them in the Bible. And this idea of God dwelling and God, or using the word tabernacle, and I'll use that because we'll see as we go into other verses, the whole idea of God tabernacling is this, that God's ultimate desire is to have relationship. You've got to grasp this. God's desire for human beings is to have relationship with him. He will dwell among them. He will be their God. And as you go through the, the Bible, you go into the book of Genesis, and in the creation stories, it's all about God dwelling with people, with Adam and Eve. And it's all about God wanting fellowship relationship. And the language used is all about relationship. And one of the things that we find through, through the stories tell us that what happens is human beings move out of that relationship. And the whole of the Old Testament and the New Testament culminating in that chapter read in 21 is about God breaking in and seeking to dwell with people. And what happens is people write about it. And that's why we have the Bible. The Bible, people, this book I've got in here called the Bible, it didn't fall from heaven. It's not like, you know, the Mormons would say Joseph Smith saw golden tablets and, and golden plates and he translated them into the Book of Mormon. It's not like that at all. It's not like the, the Quran where Muslims would say an angel or God directed Muhammad verbally to write the words. Christians don't believe that's how this, this came about because God acted, people reflected, and then they wrote about it. And it's interesting that when you come to one of the first real times in the Bible, it's in the book of Exodus, that what happens is that God's trying to bring humanity back. He creates the people of Israel, calls out Abraham, the patriarchs, etc. But what we find happens is this. There's a people of God who are slaves in Egypt. God calls a man Moses. Moses meets God at a burning bush. We've got the emblem here. Or is it this side? I'm, I don't know how it is with the watching here. Everything sometimes is back to front. But whatever it is, God speaks to him. And God wants to bring the people out. And you notice the whole point is that the people should worship God. God judges Egypt. There's plagues come along. Now, it's important to understand what's going on here. The gods of Egypt are judged through the plagues. Every plague that we have has a, an Egyptian deity that seeks to protect the people and God undermines it all. The people go out and eventually in the end chapter of the book of Exodus, and it should be coming up on your screen, now, Exodus 40, the people of Israel go from being slaves. God tells them to build a tabernacle, a big, big tent. And it says this, then the glory covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. 
And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because a cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now, what does that mean? Remember how Revelation 21 says, God will dwell with the people. Here's God breaking in to the whole area now of Israel. And this thing called the tabernacle, the beginner slaves, they end up with the presence of God in their midst. But here's a problem. Like most human beings, they can't cope with relationships. And as you go through the rest, other parts of the, the Old Testament, you find that, that uh, there's something happens. People become religious. And you've got to understand, I, I, I've been a minister of religion now class for the last 40 years. Um, I hope you understand what I'm trying to say here. But religion can be the enemy of relationship. That's a strange thing to say, isn't it? But you see, religion can become a set of rules and regulations. And what happened, I think, in the people of Israel, because they saw greatness of God, the, the fear of God comes in, and the fear of God can take over so much that it begins to merge with all the other fears that people have, and what happens is they started becoming religious. They had rules and regulations. And eventually, once people start rules and regulations, it's not long before they start creating other stuff. And very soon, what you have is people are religious, but they don't know God. The dwelling of God in relationship is not there for them. And what happens is you have phrases you probably heard. Some of you, Ichabod. The glory has departed from Israel. And you find that the history of the people now is wrestling with this fact. They believe in God. They know God's there. They trust God. They'll pray to God in that. But they do not have this relationship, this depth that God wants. This depth. God will dwell among them and be his God and they will be his people. And so eventually what happens, you get a king like David who's desperate to, to bring to the heart of the people again the central focus of God. And, and you find there's a whole lot of kings as well as David who in their history try to bring people back to God. But it, it doesn't work. Eventually David's son Solomon builds a temple. And what happens, and we'll read it here, and it's in Second Chronicles chapter 7, and again, the verse should be coming up. Solomon builds a temple. He has a big, long prayer. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, we read these words. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. 
when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord in the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here again is a breaking in of the presence of God. Remember it's there in the garden in the stories we have in Genesis. Remember it's there in the tabernacle. People go away. And now it's here again in the temple. God dwelling, God breaking in. Revelation 21, what is the ending? What does God want to do? God wants to come and dwell with his people. And so we have this breaking in of these things. But again, the people become religious. And it's easy for religion to take the place of presence. Easy for religion to become the thing. See, let me give you an example. You know why it's easy? Because there's something about doing religious things that, that can make us feel better. I always used to have, I always used to, pray with a, a friend. We prayed for the East End of Glasgow almost 38 years every Thursday morning at, at seven o'clock. And what happened was I said to him one day, you know, I, I, can, I can find myself struggling in one area and it's something I don't quite understand. I, I think I understand it, but I don't think it's right. That is, as a minister, I could go to a hospital and maybe visit a couple of people, drive to the Royal Infirmary, do all that, then come back. And I would have this sense of satisfaction. You know, I've spent about four and a half hours in journey time, going here, there, and everywhere. I would have this sense, I've done really something. I'd have a great sense. If I spent the same amount of time waiting on God, and praying, I wouldn't have that same sense. I would have the sense of, oh dear, I think I've wasted time. And it was a strange thing. And, and I really had to learn how to handle this because it's very easy when you're in ministry. And you pray for Norman about this because it's very easy because when you do the things that please people, then what happens is as you, you get, you feel better. But see, sometimes the thing that pleases God is not running about like that, but simply waiting on him, getting to know him. Because why? God is interested in relationship. And when we come to the New Testament, it's interesting. In the book of John, you've probably read it before. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. John talks about the whole creative force, power, everything of God. And then in verse 14, you see it up here, it says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt. Now that's the same word, tabernacle. Became flesh and tabernacle dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, isn't that interesting? In the Old Testament, 
God comes, dwells in the tabernacle, dwells in the temple. The people wrestle. Now has come as a human being. And the whole point of coming as a human being is to tabernacle or dwell with us. And we all know what happened. There's a contrast between what Jesus does and what the religion does, the Pharisees. And eventually it's religion that kills Jesus. It's religion that judges Jesus. And it's religion that uses the state's power, the authority of the Roman state, to kill Jesus. And, and, and it's interesting because Jesus talks about God in relational terms. And the religious people could not understand it. So the religious people were, 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 were really struggling with the idea that on a day like the Sabbath, which religiously you kept and you didn't do this, that Jesus could heal a person. But that's because God is relational. And God is not bound by these things. But you see, the Sabbath was good. It was great. But it reached a point where it was in opposition to God dwelling and relationship. And that's always going to be the struggle. As you go through the New Testament, it's the same thing. Remember in the song, he bought the whole field for joy. Paul was a man who understood this. He understood that even though doing religious things were important, it's not to poo-poo them. Even though religious things are important, and even though doing all the things and, and serving God, and that wasn't the problem. The problem was when religion lost sight of the presence. It lost sight. What was it, Dave? Remember, one thing I've asked. Now, you see, in human society, as I mentioned at the beginning, all the different philosophies, all the different theologies, all the different political stuff and all, it's all about seeking the one thing. And as you read the scriptures, the one thing, the treasure, is presence. It's the presence of God. And so Jesus dies resurrected and then ascends to God and, and then the Holy Spirit comes and Christ is now in his church. The presence of God is in the church. But again, there's going to be a battle with religion, with doing things. And you see, in, in order to try and understand the presence, the Apostle Paul talks about, I think I've just got the reference here, it's 1 Corinthians 3.16, where he says, Do you not know that you're God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? You, speaking to the Christians, speaking to the folk in Sandy Hills, don't you know that you're God's temple? That was important, but while the old temple, the glory came, the presence came, and out of that flowed life. And so as a Christian, you are God's temple. But he didn't just stop there because in Ephesians, we read Ephesians 2.29, it talks about being built up to be a dwelling place for God by his Spirit. 
Think about that. Two temples now. There's a temple which is, for me, my body, Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's in me now. And, and what God wants to do, what Christ wants to do, is to fill his temple, which is me, with his presence, that his presence overflows into other people. But he also wants to fill the corporate, the group coming together. Sandy Hills, they want, when we all come, and I'm looking at all these empty seats, and I'm just picturing next week full of people who'll have face masks on, but underneath, hopefully, they'll all be saying, Amen to this. That together as you come, God wants to dwell among us in a very unique way. That as his presence fills this place, out of that special relationship, out of that experience, there will flow life to, to the whole of the East End of Glasgow. And that's a great thing, isn't it? I remember, for those of you who've done Alpha, you'll know that Nicky Gumbel talks about a time when a man called John Wimber came to, to um, Holy Trinity, Brompton. And he came and, and really, God did great things. In fact, Wimber really carried something of the presence of God with him and it just was shared. I went to see John Wimber in 1984 in Sheffield really incredible. But the, the interesting thing about it, and he made a remark that really struck with me. And, and, and it was so non-religious that it struck a chord. You know, I was a Baptist minister. So, you know, as I say, I, it wasn't like I was out in the periphery. Oh, I hate the church type nonsense. Um, but, you know, Wimber, they were from California very relaxed because he was into the presence of God. And he said this, and I always remember it struck me, he said, you know, and I, I'm not going to do an American accent and spoil it, but he says, you know, God wants to hang out with you. And that really struck me. God wants to hang out with us. And he's not bothered Wimber went on to say, if you give him a bad reputation, he wants to hang out with you. Now you think about that. That God wants to hang out with you individually. And he wants to hang out with you corporately. Isn't that quite a, a fantastic thing? Isn't it something to really, in a sense, just, just take you to a different understanding of who God is. But for many of us, we do struggle because, you know, I, I'm always thankful for this, you know. Now, I, don't get me wrong. I was thankful that when I became a, I came out of a non-Christian family. And I've always been thankful for that. At first, I, I kind of resented it because like most people, you know, in the 50s, 60s, that, you were just you were just left, you did your own thing, you know, and parents were so busy, they, you know, they, they just never understood parenting in any way. They did their best as they understood it. 
But the but the whole thing about the 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 whole idea of that was that you know I, I didn't have any religious stuff put into me. Now all that came in and next five, six, seven years when I became a Christian and had to get rid of a lot of stuff. But I always valued that because it, it taught me that the key thing was always about Jesus. I think that's why the story of the treasure in the field, that for me, the treasure wasn't becoming religious, although I did become religious and hopefully I've managed to deal with that, wasn't becoming religious. And remember I'm saying, I, I don't want to poo that it's important we do religious stuff. But it wasn't religious as the end goal. It was knowing Jesus. And that's what Norman goes, I goes on about, but it's good he goes on about it every week, that you've really got to meet with Jesus. Because God wants to hang out with you. And he's not that bothered if you are, inverted commas, religious in a Church of Scotland sense, or a Baptist sense, or a Brethren sense, or an Episcopalian sense. It does not matter. He wants to hang out with you. Because remember what the ending of the book is about. The ending of the book is about God coming and dwelling with us. And so the main theme, the one thing, the one thing I think that's deep in our hearts that make people say, this is the way, the, the one thing of politics or the one thing of philosophy, the one thing of social engineering, the one thing, the, the one thing is deep in us. But the one thing that we crave for is really this presence. I want to finish by simply reading from somebody called Francis, now you can pronounce his name, Frangipane or Frangipani. Um, remember hearing him in the, the, the early 90s and he told us how to pronounce his name and I've forgotten. But if you've ever read his books, his books are excellent. He talks about the, the fear of God, but he also talks about how you need to understand the grace of God. And one of his spiritual theories is that for lots of us we fear God and that's why we become so religious we don't understand that we're maybe fearing him and we're just deep deep inside trying to almost bargain make sure that he doesn't batter us and all that by doing religious stuff but he writes these words and I want to finish with this he said the justice of God's law is holy right? No problem with the idea of, of the fear of God, God's law. But he says these words, but the sacrifice of the Son of God is holier still, for mercy triumphs over justice. That's what the book of James 2.13 says. And then he says these words, and you understand why I'm quoting it, the Lord who filled Solomon's temple with his presence will fill and is filling his people today. We have the inexhaustible sacrifice himself seated upon the throne of grace. 
It is he who is calling us to boldly come before him. Enter, therefore, into his glory by the blood of the Lamb. Let Jesus wash your heart of its sins. For our goal is to live in the presence of the very same holy God who appeared in his glory to the Jewish people. And that is a big challenge, the big, big challenge. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, John was with Jesus, Moses, Elijah appeared, great clouds, everything. And, and in Mark's, and Mark's teaching of it, he says, eventually it all vanished and they saw only Jesus. And that's what I, I pray for you as an individual that you understand as an individual, God wants to hang out with you. <laughs> That's the whole point of the whole exercise of history from God's perspective. He wants to hang out of you, out with you, regardless of how you are. Whether you're the biggest sinner in the East End of Glasgow, or you're the most righteous person, as far as religion goes, God wants to hang out with you. And Sandy Hills, as a church, you begin next week, in a sense. Again, it's, it's now a new phase. It's different. It's, it's not how the old was, because it's all going to be different. To realize as a church that God wants to hang out with Sandy Hills Church. Because he just likes us. That's an we just got to accept that, that God likes us. And even though there's a whole lot of subplots, a whole lot of strands in the Old New Testaments, the end of the, the book tells us that all the author wants to do is to wipe away the tears, take away the pain, take away the old order of things, and create new things that come about because he is in our midst. Individually, you have the choice, the treasures in the field, and that's a presence in Christ. The treasures in the field, you have the choice. You sell everything you've got for it. And even as a church now, we've got to understand as a group or corporate group of God's people, there's treasure in a field for Sandy Hills Parish. And it might mean giving up stuff, but whatever you give up, always remember that story. The man found a treasure that was hidden in a field and he sold everything for joy. I wanted him really just to finish with.